0: Good morning, Redeemer. It is so good to be with you all this morning. I am humbled and I'm grateful for the opportunity to worship with you, to bring God's Word to you this morning. To that end, if you have a Bible with you, would you please open it to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Today we're going to work through the, a passage that is easily one of my all-time favorites, a passage that is very dear to my heart. And not only is it just an outright excellent passage... It's incredibly timely for us to hear today. You see, in the beginning of the second chapter of his letter to the Philippian church, Paul provides an antidote to one of the most serious diseases to ever face the church. Paul is providing here a cure to the plague of disunity. Now, I'm sure that you can all agree with me that this is something desperately needed in the church. We need a cure for disunity. Over the last two years, we have seen a significant increase in the amount of hostility and disunity between churches, between brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I don't want to understate or minimize how problematic that is. Now, it's safe to say that disunity is not always easily spotted. It's easy for us to see the openly defiant and aggressive brother or sister. It's not easy for us to spot the gossiper or the slanderer or the one holding a grudge against another. That is where unity truly gets broken down. That is what divides the body of Christ. You see, disunity and division not only hurts those inside the church, not only does it damage your relationships with one another, but it mars and discredits the name of Christ himself. If Christians can't get along, what does that say about Jesus? Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ can't be anything special. It can't be anything significant if those who profess faith in it can't get along, if we cannot tolerate each other. The church must witness to the world through unity. In fact, in the verses preceding our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul says that very thing. In Philippians chapter 1, 27 to 28, Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Here Paul is instructing the Philippian church that they ought to be united in the face of opposition and persecution. And this is just as true for us today as it was for them. On top of that, Paul actually goes so far as to say that standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, is part and parcel of what it means to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if you have been saved, you ought to strive side by side. You ought to be united. To be a Christian is to seek unity within the church. So I hope now that you have your Bibles open to Philippians 2, chapter 1. As we turn our attention to the text before us, we will see the antidote for the disease of disunity that Paul prescribes for us this morning. So hear now the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've already mentioned this morning that Paul is instructing the Philippian church to be united. This is actually the heart of the entire book of Philippians. It is primarily a letter about unity. But this morning, I want to zoom in. I want to focus on one aspect of Paul's instructions for unity, the heart of our passage. You see, Paul's demonstrating one of the most important requirements for unity within the church, humility. This morning, we will see that unity is actually the result of humility. We will see the recipe for humility in Christ Jesus, and then we will turn our attention to the ultimate reward for humility, humility. And as we look at all of this, we'll see it with an underlying understanding that as we pursue humility, we must do so with a heart that is also seeking unity in the church. Which leads us to the first thing we see in the text this morning, the result of humility. As I've mentioned, there's a clear emphasis on unity in this passage. Paul is instructing the Philippian church to complete his joy by being united. He tells them to have the same love, to be in full accord, to have one mind. Now, this is actually an exe- excellent example of how chapter divisions in our Bibles can sometimes be distracting and unhelpful. As we saw in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1, Paul has already been encouraging the Philippian church to be united. And he's actually continuing the same train of thought right into ch- chapter 2. G. Walter Hansen in his commentary on Philippians, picks up on this. He says, the result of the experience of unity with one another in the same struggle caused by those who oppose the church should be an endeavor to seek unity with those who have different interests within the church. So Paul moves from an external need for unity, steadfastness in the face of opposition, to an internal need, comfort, love, and joy. The church must be united. The church must protect Her witness. Christians must support and come alongside one another. The church must be united. I want to take a minute this morning to acknowledge the fact that this is a lofty goal. It's an impossible task set before us. After all, if you know anything about church history, you know it is riddled with disunity and division and infighting. It seems like Christians can't do anything but fight one another. How can we possibly find any unity in a church full of sinners like me and like you? First, it must be said that this is only possible by the grace of God. Secondly, Paul gives us another cure for this age-old problem of disunity here in Philippians 2. The cure for division and disunity in the church is humility. He says this in verses 3 and 4. That's the instruction. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you want to be a church that is united, you need to be a church that is humble. Now I could easily just end the sermon here. I could pack my things and go. It's pretty straightforward. Verses 3 and 4 are clear. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Put the needs of others above your own. The end. That would solve most disunity in the church. Just go and do it. The problem is that's easier said than done. It's easy for me to sit here and say, Be humble, don't be selfish. That's pretty obvious from the Bible to anyone who spends any considerable time in it. Now, the Apostle Paul acknowledges this fact. He knows it's easier said than done. And he doesn't leave us with this simple general instruction. Rather, he provides the perfect example for humility for us to follow. He provides us the example of Jesus Christ who demonstrates true and perfect humility. And as we work through this, how Jesus demonstrates his humility, we will see the second thing I want to draw out from the text this morning, which is the recipe for humility. And the first ingredient, if you will, in this recipe is inward awareness. But before we dive deeper into this point, I want to explain for a moment what I talk about when i mean when i what i mean sorry when i talk about humility because what i'm not talking about is a kind of self-deprecating false modesty that we see all around us i'm not talking about the humble brag i'm not talking about the person who describes their weaknesses as caring too much or working too hard i'm not talking about the kind of person who constantly makes fun of themselves as a way to avoid coming across as proud now, real quick, I want to do a quick survey. Please raise your hand if you know someone who can't really take a compliment. That's me. I'm guilty of that. Every time they're complimented, they feel the need to make a self-deprecating remark about how they have no good in themselves, or it was all luck, or something like that. I can be very guilty of this. And as I read this passage, I can't help but be reminded of the famous quote by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity. He writes that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And we get this wrong all the time. We're prone to think that humility looks like making ourselves less. Rather, true humility understands exactly who we are. It acknowledges our weaknesses, but also our strengths and talents and that gives God glory for them. The Apostle Paul demonstrates this himself in 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians he writes this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is able to identify, and he even expresses his own strength, His amazingly hard work, yet he does not take the credit for it. That's what humility looks like. You can, you should acknowledge your strengths, your talents, your gifts, to the glory of God. As he is the source of all that is good in you. True humility requires an inward awareness of who you truly are. Now this idea is not explicitly stated anywhere in the text, but it is implicit throughout the entire passage. For us to be truly humble, we must have an understanding of who we are. In verses 5 and 6, Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In this statement is the concept, the idea that Jesus knew that he was God. He was in the very form of God. He is fully divine. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He had a clear understanding of who he was. So too, we must know who we are. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Philippians, picks up on this. He hopefully tells us, rather, it being humility, has to do with a proper estimation of oneself, the stance of the creature before the creator, utterly dependent and trusting. Humility requires that you understand that you are not God. You are his creation. He is your creator. A proper understanding of this will automatically create at least some degree of humility in your life. You will understand that you are not the Lord of your own life. Human beings are wonderfully capable creatures. We're capable of creating many things. Look at the world around us. We are constantly exercising our creativity and our capacity to create new things. However, we will never be able to create something from nothing. Only God can. Only God is the sovereign Lord of all creation. You need to know that you are not him, if you are to have any humility at all. And secondly, you need to know that you are our sinner. Romans 3:23 reminds us that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 53 tells us they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Each and every one of us is a sinner. There is no hope of humility if you have not acknowledged this fact. The fact that you have not lived up to God's perfect standard. Indeed, you cannot. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yet Paul goes on and tells us that Jesus came in the likeness of men. He took on the fullness of humanity without giving up his divinity. And he died in our place on the cross. Which is the third crucial thing you must understand about yourselves. That if you are saved, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead, then you are saved by faith, through faith by grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8-10 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A true understanding and application of the gospel to our lives decimates pride. A true understanding of the gospel is at the very heart of humility. For if you understand the gospel, then you understand your place before God. A sinner saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. There is no room for pride, arrogance, or selfishness in the mix. An inner awareness of who we are is absolutely required. It is the first ingredient to being truly humble. The second ingredient in our recipe for humility is appropriate ambition. This idea builds directly off of our first point of inner awareness. First, we must know who we are, and we must know our place. We see this in explicitly stated verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Selfish, inappropriate ambition is at the heart of all sin. It is the very nature of sin itself. Sin is, after all, us trying to be the gods of our own lives. It is a refusal to submit to God's authority because we want to live and be the ultimate authority of our own lives. And Jesus is the perfect example of the opposite of this inappropriate ambition. Please look with me in your Bibles to verse 6 and 7 where we read that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now there are many scholarly debates about what's going on in these two verses, what they exactly mean. And the specific nuances of these verses can be tricky to work out in their entirety And it's very easy for us here to lose the forest for the trees. So this morning, I just want to clarify one potential misunderstanding that could seriously undermine our understanding of the text. You see, when Paul writes that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he is not implying that Jesus was somehow less than God the Father. And somehow could have become equal with him. Rather, Paul is stating that Jesus was, in fact, equal with the Father from the get-go, but that he did not count this as something to be grasped or held on to. Jesus did not reach out and grasp hold of equality with God. He already had it. He did not feel the need to grasp tightly every single benefit of his divinity. On the contrary, he humbled himself. He took on humanity in addition to his divinity, He limited himself. He gave up some of his divine attributes. For example, Jesus was no longer omnipresent. In the incarnation, Jesus became limited to one physical location forever. But he did not give up his divinity. He is eternally equal with the Father. He is the second person of the Godhead. He was never, is never, and will never be less. Than the Father. What Paul is really doing here with this language is contrasting Jesus with Adam. That's the point. Remember that Adam and Eve sought to be like God. That was the temptation presented by the serpent in the garden, after all. In Genesis 3 4 5, we read, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve sought to be like God. They counted equality with God as something to be grasped. Jesus, on the other hand, was equal with God. Yet unlike us, he did not see this as something to be grasped. Rather, as Philippians tells us, he emptied himself. He took on the form of man. So the question then for us is, what does it look like for people who are not God to have appropriate ambition? Well, it looks like evaluating your desires in life. It is often said that morality is doing the right things the right way for the right reasons. And that's what we're talking about here, the right reasons. What is your motivation? Are you working hard to be rich and successful? Are you studying hard to get a great job so that you can have a nice house? Are you taking advantage of others to get ahead at work? Are you bad mouthing others in order to land that sale or that promotion? Is the only place you're willing to serve at church the worship team because you want people to see you? Are you willing to do something good for someone else if no one ever knows about it? Consider what Jesus says here to James and John's mother in Matthew twenty five, Matthew twenty twenty five to twenty eight, when she asked them to be for them to be honored and sit at Jesus' side in heaven. Jesus responds, but Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I just want to pause here for a moment. I want you to picture a community of people whose deepest desires, whose greatest ambitions are to see one another blessed and lifted up even at their own expense. Think about what it would look like if we took seriously the word of God here in Philippians 2. As Levi mentioned, we are to outdo one another in showing honor. Our ambition should not be for ourselves but to bless those around us. Do you want to be salt? Do you want to be light in this town? Then change your ambitions. Seek not your own gain, but the interest of others. Which leads directly into the third ingredient in our recipe for humility. A selfless attitude. This is a natural progression from the first two points. If you have an accurate understanding of who you are, if you have properly ordered desires and ambitions, then that ought to result in a selfless attitude. This is exactly the attitude of Christ. We see clearly in verses 7 to 9, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think it's easy for us to understate, to underestimate, to take for granted the selflessness of Christ. Which is precisely why this passage is so dear to my heart. You could spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of this passage and never grow weary. There is infinite joy, unending comfort, such wonder to behold in the selfless humility of Christ. And not only of Christ, but of the Father as well, as Gordon Fee helpfully reminds us. In Jesus Christ, the true nature of the living God has been revealed ultimately. And finally, God is not a grasping, self-centered being. He is most truly known through the one whose equality with God found expression in his pouring himself out in sacrificial love by taking the lowest place, the role of a slave, and whose love for his human creatures found consummate expression in his death on the cross. Brothers and sisters, the second person of the Trinity, The Son of God, who created the universe and everything in it, came into the world as a baby, born in a manger, and laid his life down for sinners whose hearts were dead in their rejection of him. The one who is worthy of all glory, all praise, and all honor, gave it up to be shamed, mocked, and scorned by those he came to save. There is no greater display of humility imaginable. This is it. Do you want to know how to treat one another? Here you go. Paul tells us to have this mind. Be like Christ. Don't put yourself first. Put others first. Think of yourself less. Die to self. So much of our lives are consumed with ourselves. We are by default selfish, self-centered people. And if you're sitting here thinking I'm being a little harsh, I would encourage you to spend any considerable time with a two-year-old. Or maybe two two two-year-olds. There's a reason one of the first words children learn is mine. But that little voice never really leaves us, does it? There's always a part of us in the back of our mind crying, mine. We're like the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. We want what we want. We want to do it when we want to do it. And we want to do it how we want to do it. Mine, mine, mine mine. Now, thankfully, I'm a little more sanctified than when I was when I was two. Yet, I'm still a terribly sinful, selfish man. And having recently had a newborn, I think it's revealed how selfish I really am. I'm definitely at my most selfish when it's two o'clock in the morning and I'm woken up by the sound of Eleanor crying. And my initial reaction is just to go back to sleep. Because every fiber in my being wants to go back to sleep. I don't care about what she needs. I don't care about what she wants. I'm desperately praying that she will simply go back to sleep so that I can too. There's an initial frustration and anger and selfish in me when I'm awake when I awake that is frankly alarming. But then I get out of bed and I see her sad face. I see her needs. And all that frustration and selfishness disappears. You see, selflessness requires a shift in perspective. It requires looking past yourself. Opening up your eyes to consider the needs of others. It requires putting others' needs above your own. Which is easy to do for my two-month-old daughter. It's a lot harder to do for the sinful Christians I'm surrounded with every day yet we are surrounded by people handcrafted in the image of God, whom he delights in. People who are so valuable that Christ gave his life up for them. I'm not asking to think less of yourself. I'm asking you to consider those around you for who they are. To open your eyes and see that they are more significant than yourself. Because when you do that, When you see others as more significant than yourself, it does not become an impossible burden to serve them. It becomes a joy and a privilege. One commentator commentator hopefully sums this up saying, it's not a matter of superiority or comparison, but a matter of obedience and mutual submission. Mutual submission is the heart of Christian community. It is the result of us trying to be Christ to one another. It is the setting aside of my preferences, my wants, my needs, my rights for yours, and you doing the same for me. It is impossible for us to be truly humble while continuing to be self-centered. Humility requires that we adopt a selfless attitude. And as we have seen this morning, Jesus demonstrates that perfectly. It looks like laying our lives down for one another. And as we have seen, this intense selflessness proceeds naturally from an inward understanding of who we are, from having appropriate ambitions and desires. These three things are necessary for true humility. We've already seen that this morning, that unity in the church requires this true humility. We've seen how Christ has demonstrated that for us. And now with the time we have left, I want to highlight the reward for humility. Look in your Bibles with me now to verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2. There we read this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is the word therefore. I'm sure Levi has taught you that when we see the word therefore, we have to ask what it's there for. So here Paul is using the word therefore to draw a cause and effect relationship with the preceding verses. What he is saying is that Christ's humility and his death on the cross result in his glorification above every name. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus did not seek to grasp his equality with the Father. He did not seek to hold on to every divine benefit. Rather, he humbled himself to the point of death upon a cross. And because of that, he has been glorified above all the earth. Jesus is lifted up by laying himself down. He is glorified through humility. As he himself said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Jesus received glory through humility. And in doing so, he paved the way for us. He demonstrated the path to glory for us as well. Do not be tempted for a moment to think that there is any glory for Christians here on earth. The normative pattern for Christians is not success. It is not wealth, health, prosperity, and glory. No, in fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 that those who do good things for the recognition recognition and praise of others on earth have received their their reward. There is no reward for them in heaven whatsoever. Jesus did not come into the world with a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand. He did not come as a conquering, glorious king. No, he came as a gentle, lowly babe born in a manger. He limited himself to identify with his people. He walked the same roads. He ate the same meals He toiled with them. He sweat with them. He wept with them. And then he became lower than them. He served them, suffered for them. He died for them. He became the lowest of the lows, humiliated in front of all, naked on a cross and then lowered into a tomb. And then he rose. Not only did he rise from the dead, he rose higher to his rightful place above all the earth where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, to the place that was always his. That is the pattern set before us. Cross before crown, shame before honor, pain before pleasure, down before up. That's Christianity in a nutshell. We must follow Christ. We must lay ourselves down so that one day we will be lifted up with him in glory. In this is what fuels our humility when it gets hard. This is what allows us to turn the other cheek. This is why Paul instructs the church in Corinth to prefer being wronged, because Christians are able to consistently put others above themselves, because we know what lies at the end of the journey. So it doesn't matter how often you are taken advantage of. It doesn't matter the sacrifices you make. We know that no matter how hard it gets, it is worth every disadvantage and sacrifice. Because Paul concludes with the resounding proclamation that at the end of it all, every knee will bow before Jesus. Every single human being will kneel before the one who humbled himself enough to die naked on a cross for sinners. Every knee will bow. Every single one. You will bow. You will either bow in adoration and praise of your Savior or you will fall on your knees trembling in awe and fear of the one you have rejected. So the question is, which one will you be? Will you continue to live life on your own terms? Will you continue to be proud until you kneel before the Lord of the universe in judgment, fear, and condemnation? Or will you humble yourself? Will you repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, So that you will bow before him and enter into glory with him. The choice is yours. If you choose to follow Jesus, you must count the cost. We have seen in this passage the pattern of humility that Christ demonstrates. We must take up our crosses, we must lay ourselves down and follow him. And if we are to follow Christ, we must have the mind of Christ. We must have an inward awareness of who we are. We must have appropriate ambitions and desires. We must adopt a selfless attitude. These three things are critical if we want to be humble people. Brothers and sisters, there is such a need for this humility in the church today. This humility is the heart of unity within the church. Christians striving to be Christ, to live like Christ to one another, Christians laying themselves down for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we close this morning, I want to reflect on how significant this passage is for us. What a difference the church would make in the world if every Christian were to live out this text. I want you to think about for a moment how much Redeemer City Church would stand out in Aurelia. Think about how brightly you would shine for the kingdom of God. Think about how many people would be drawn to the kind of community that exists when people live this way. I get so excited when I think about what that kind of community is capable of. We have seen today that Jesus is our perfect example of humility. He is the standard to which we must strive. We've seen that he is our reward for humility. He is our recipe for humility. And we have seen that this humility will result in the unity of Christ's bride, the church. This is the impossible task set before us today, the lofty goal, to follow Christ in laying ourselves down for the benefits of others and the unity of the church. And we have no hope of doing this by our own. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today. God, just so aware of our sinfulness. Lord, our need for your grace. God, we have seen the example that Christ has set before us, and we know we cannot follow. God, not on our own. Lord, we come today before you. We ask for your help. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to lay ourselves down. Lord, open our eyes to see who we are. God, to know who we are. Lord, help us to Open our eyes, God, to see others for who they are, to see the value in our brothers and sisters in Christ, the people sitting beside us, Lord, who are dearly loved by you, that we might lay ourselves down for them, Lord, that we would seek to lift those up above us, God, that we would outdo one another in showing honor, that that would be our goals, our deepest desires would be to see you glorified and to see your people lifted up. Lord, help us now. Amen.